Welcome to Magnificat Proclaims, presented to you by Magnificat, a ministry to Catholic women. Whether this is your first time you've listened to our program, or you have been with us many times before, we are delighted that you have joined us. I'm Donna Ross, your host for today's program. We pray that today may be a special day in your life as you experience through the personal testimony of our featured guest, the presence of Jesus Christ among us. He is alive and well. Magnificat, taken from Luke chapter 1, is the great hymn of praise that Mary prayed while visiting her cousin Elizabeth. Both women had been deeply touched by God. Elizabeth was bearing a long-awaited child. Mary was carrying within her womb the very Son of God. They came together to help one another, to speak of God's action in their lives, to sing, to pray, to share a common faith, and to be strengthened for all that was to come. Like Mary and Elizabeth, we want to come together in God's presence and proclaim the Almighty has done great things for me and you, and holy is His name. This Magnificat Proclaims series features Catholic Christian women who have shared their testimony at one of the many Magnificat chapters hosting quarterly meals around the world. Typically, this three-hour gathering provides opportunity for a shared meal, fellowship, communal praise and worship, personal testimony of one woman's expression of God's action in her life, and intercessory prayer for the needs of the church and of those present. We trust that these testimonies will help each of us come to better understand that we are truly children of God, made in His image and likeness. We are daughters of the King. It is my privilege to introduce Aggie Nick. Aggie is chairman of the National Service Committee of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal of the United States. She also serves as co-director of Servant House, a Catholic house of prayer, a place of prayer, seminars, spiritual direction, Bible study, prison ministry, food for those in need, and many other ministries. She has devoted her life to this ministry. This is a woman who takes seriously Jesus' command to feed the hungry to visit the imprisoned, and to set the captives free. She's a member of Senla, chapter of Magnificat, that's central Louisiana, in Alexandria, as well as a member of the steering committee of the Southern Regional Charismatic Conference, 
and the Diocesan Service Committee of Alexandria. Aggie says, Jesus has led me to discover who I am in Him. He has opened my eyes to see and understand that I have value and ability in and through Him. After an automobile accident and being in recovery for one year, she was gently led to the loving God that was somehow in my life but not really a living part of it. The journey has been exciting and rewarding, she says. She has been baptized in the Holy Spirit since March 1972. She and her husband, Clyde, live in Marksville, Louisiana. They have been blessed with three children and four grandchildren. Once again, it is my pleasure to introduce Aggie Nick. Good morning. Would it make you feel better if I said hi, y'all? <laughs> Would that relax us all and bring us into an atmosphere? You're probably expecting me to say that anyway, aren't you? <laughs> the scriptures tell us that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It further states to us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, would have eternal life. That's the most quoted scripture in the whole Bible. You see it at football games, people hold up these little plaques that say John 3.16. But John 3.17 takes it a step further. It says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but that the world would be saved through him. It's a loving God we serve. It's a loving God who's full of mercy that we follow. And I want to speak today of my journey with him. Am I in a gathering of women that I can say truly, I am in love with Jesus Christ? Yes. When I was growing up in my mother's family, they always had this saying, there are two things we don't discuss. It's religion and politics. But you know what? They lied because they were discussing them all the time and arguing over each thing. I mean, as I grew up, I could hear this all the time, the separation of, of religious views, the separation of political views. But I'm here to tell you today, if there's any one thing we need to be talking about in these days and this times, it is the faith we have in a God of mercy and a God who visits his people with love, who has poured out his love on us in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, who comes to us personally in his Eucharist, who inspires us with his written word. It's time to speak and tell the world what we know. In St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, he wrote, those things I used to consider as gain, I now reappraise as loss. I have come to rate all as loss in light of the surpassing knowledge of my Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, this is where I believe we, we come to when we yield ourselves to God. Everything else is loss. Without Jesus, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many titles you have after your name. It doesn't matter how famous or rich you are. It doesn't matter who or what you are unless you know Jesus Christ. Everything else has no meaning. And once you know him, everything comes into play and is full of meaning. Because of some of the things that I'm getting ready to share, I want to quote this scripture from Tobit. 
because they're personal things that I will be sharing, and I don't share them to boast. I share them to point to a God who does such things and works in the lives of each of us who open our hearts to him. It's from Tobit 12, verse 11b. A king's secret it is prudent to keep, but the works of God are to be made known with due honor. And the revised English standard says, the works of God should be glorified in public. You know, we always tell many things, don't we? We share many things with people. Well, we should be declaring the works of God. God works in each of our lives in wonderful little supernatural ways that touch us and cause us to be aware that he is active and moving in our lives. When God first touched my life very profoundly, I, I tried to figure out, well, you know, like, how do I respond? What can I do for God? Like I could do anything for God, you know? But what I finally figured out was what I do for God is to love him with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind and my strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. That's what God asks of us. While church attendance was always very important to me, I must admit that God was not always first and foremost on my heart or mind. I prayed often, but it was never with that personal relationship. It was always asking for something, you know, like desperate help, help God uh, that you come to. When my children were in school grades one, two, and four, I was in an automobile accident. At that time, I was working part-time, going to school part-time, um, being a mother and wife full-time. And whatever happened in that process of my commuting, somehow I either fell asleep momentarily or was distracted, and the crash that followed left me with a broken right hip, my right thigh broken in two places, both of my ankles broken, one of them crushed and had to be severely uh, uh, surgically put back together, and my right, my left wrist, just as we say in French, lanyap, just a little extra. I had the, the left wrist broken also. I stayed in the hospital one month in traction. They were going to put a, a, a rod, you know, in my hip and, and also that I could, could walk, but my ankles were so badly crushed that they said, well, it's useless to do this surgery because you won't be able to stand or walk anyway. So they decided that the best thing to do was to put me in a body cast. Now, the doctor came in to begin to explain to me what this procedure would be, and I thought that, you know, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I'm going to prepare myself. You know, I'm going to be ready to face this. And the whole time they were doing this procedure, he would distract me and show me pictures on a TV screen of what was happening and what was happening when it was finished. And I realized I was encased in this thing, and I was going to be in it for four months. It was like my heart sank. You know, it was just like, oh, my God. And when I got back to the room, I was hysterical, just crying. And, and the nun who was, you know, the director of nurses on the floor came to me, and they said, we're going to give you a shot, you know, to, to put you to sleep and, and, and calm you down. And I said, no, because when I wake up, I'll still be in this. You know, I, I have to cry it out. You have to let me do that. In the meantime, my husband called, wanting to talk to me, you know, everything being over, and I said, tell him I'm sleeping, because I didn't want him to, to hear me crying, because I knew it would upset him so much. <clears throat> as, I, um, as I began to recover, some awesome things happened. 
that opened my eyes to many realities. First of all, my mother stayed with me every day while my children went to school. People picked them up and took them to school because my husband was working uh, in a town 30 miles away from us, and he would leave earlier in the morning. People would pick up my children and take them to school and bring them home. Um, <clears throat> people cooked meals for us. They would call and say, tell your husband not to cook dinner tonight. We're sending food for your family. People pressed money into my husband's hands at church. And as I began to look at all of these things, I kept saying to myself, what's the matter with me? I don't know that, that I would have done that. Would I have been that open to reach out like people are reaching out to us? I mean, it was really a time of self-examination. One day I was lying in bed and I was reading this article in a magazine. I think it was Life magazine at that time. And it was an article about the Jesus movement in this country. And on a great big page at the end of this article was a woman coming out of the Pacific Ocean who had just been baptized. And the look on her face was absolutely captivating. And I looked at her and I said, why don't I look like that when I think about Jesus? What does she have that I don't have? I had made a bargain with God. <clears throat> you ever make bargains with God? I don't do that anymore. It's like, you know. But at that time, my bargain was, if you promise that you will show me some way every day that you are with me, I promise I will never say, why me? Let's, let's make this pact. And so as I was in this bedroom, uh, they had built this like trapeze thing over the beds with a bar so that I could sort of move myself a little bit. I had to be turned over physically by other people. Absolutely no control over any movement. I'd look out the window and I'd see the way the sun came in. I'd see the birds splashing in the bird bath on the patio. People would come, every day someone came to visit me. This was amazing. You know, people that I knew casually, somebody came every day to see me. You know, it was just awesome. It was wonderful. I, my mother and I, you know, I, I'm not a big TV person. We listen to a lot of music. Music has always been a vital part of my family, and I'll be sharing something about that later. But it was music, you know. I took a correspondence course. As I was in bed, I figured, why waste the time, you know, that I'm just lying around here. And uh, <clears throat> it was on English literature. I enjoyed it very much. Um, but one day, you know, I, I never could ask the Lord to heal me because I felt that you couldn't ask that. I felt that it was selfish to pray for myself, but it was killing me inside because I was told that I probably would never walk again without a brace on my leg. And um, one day a priest came to visit me who was a very good friend of our family, and uh, he was asking me how I was doing, and I shared that with him, what a difficult time I was having praying for myself but dying inside with that thought that I might be like this for the rest of my life. And uh, he said, well, you know, I'm going to tell you a story about <clears throat> at the wedding feast of Cana. He said, you know, when they ran out of wine, Jesus' mother came to him and she said, they need wine. And he said to her, woman, what would you have me do? He said, and I believe he's looking at you right now and saying to you, woman, what would you have me do? And I said, well, if he's saying that, I have the answer. <laughs> I, I want to walk again, Lord. I want to walk again. Shortly after that, in our parish, they begin a Bible study. 
And my friends wanted me and my husband to be included in this Bible study, but there was no way that we could go, so a group met with us in our home around my bed. Now, I didn't know that then, but the proclamation of the word over me on a weekly basis every day, I believe, was the instrument of healing as the word was in that room and discussed and digested by us. The word of God was an awesome presence to me that began the process of healing. After a while, I went back to work, and shortly after that, our very best friends began to... Um, have uh, a gathering in their home. They were calling it a prayer meeting, you know. But they never, ever invited me or my husband. Now, in our arrogance, we said, they're not inviting us because they know we'll tell them that that's not true, that that's not really a good thing. Well, then one day we got um, an invitation. I got an invitation at work from someone else who was there. A Methodist man said to me, you really should come to our prayer meeting. It was like oh, the inner sanctum was opening, you know. I couldn't wait to go, and my husband said to me, well, don't ask me. I'm not going. So I went into that meeting that night, and I was captivated by what I saw and heard, but uncomfortable because people were praying spontaneously. I had never heard this. I mean, I kept looking from person to person, like, who's going to say something next? You know, I was just, it was uncomfortable for me. But when I walked out of the room, I knew I was coming back. Isn't that amazing how you just know that God is drawing on your heart? When I got home, my husband was waiting. Well, what did they do? He wanted to know right away. You know, I said, well, I, I'm going back, you know. And in the process of going back, he began to come. And um, we, were, we had in our area a lay witness mission because at this time it was ecumenical. There were people from all denominations in our town who had gathered for these, these prayer meetings. And this lay witness mission, they had couples coming from everywhere. And they began to talk about, you know, giving your life to Jesus, you know, all of these things. And, and we'd come home, we were terrible for each other. Because we'd say things like, well, we're not priests and nuns. You know, we're, we're people with a family. You know, how are we going to do all of this? You know, surely God is not asking us to, to, to move in that direction. Or, and so we kept doing this with each thing that went on each night. On the Sunday morning, we were to come back, and we were to give a, a commitment to God that Sunday. And we had been talking about that. And as we were getting dressed, you know, I was combing my hair. He was fixing his tie and all of this. And as we were saying things, I mean, it was like I, I had this instant thought in my mind, and I stopped him, and I said, do you know what we're saying? We're saying we're afraid of God. You know, I'm not afraid of God. Are you afraid of God? He said, no, I'm not. And we said, well, let's go with an open mind. Well, what happened shortly thereafter was people in this prayer group began to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. One by one, I mean, they'd come to the next meeting. They were saying all of these wonderful things that were happening. And in the process, they were saying things like, gee, I was such a sinner. You know, I used to do this and, and this, and, you know, and God has come into my life. And I was sitting there saying, I never did any of those things. Why, why doesn't God give me this gift? So one night I was, uh, you see, I didn't think I was a sinner. Has anybody else in you ever been there? You think you're not a sinner because you aren't doing the major things, you know, down the list or whatever. So one night I finished reading this book called um, A Glow with the Spirit by Robert Frost. And at the end of the book, he led you in this, this thing to ask for the Holy Spirit to come into your life.
Well, this was a miracle in our house. I had gone to the prayer meeting that night. My husband was not feeling well. And when I came back, everyone was in bed asleep. I was by myself. And so I knelt down after I finished the book. It told you what to do. I knelt down in my dining room and I said to the Lord, if there are any sins in my life that you want me to, to confess, you know, you just, you just tell me, Lord. You know, I, I will take care of that with confession first thing. Well, the list that began to run through my mind was like, oh, yes, God, that is sin. Oh, well, you know, that probably, you're probably right. That, that is a sin, you know, and, and I, I mean, I just, I couldn't believe all the things that were just cropping up. And, and I kept saying, well, I probably won't get anything now. You know, it's like, just, but I said, could I have it anyway? So if, if there's such a thing as baptism of the Holy Spirit. You see, I wasn't really sure. If there's such a thing, could I have that, Lord? And when I said that, in my foyer, which was about maybe 15 feet away from me, I felt this presence. And I knew it was God. And I was not afraid. And then this presence began to move closer and closer. I could feel it coming closer. And, and everything in me was like, what's going to happen when it gets to me, you know, it's like, but I was not afraid. I just, I just knelt there with my arms open, you know, just waiting. And when it got to me, it came into me. And it was the most profound love I have ever felt in my life. To this day, I can close my eyes and still feel it. I mean, it was just that, just that awesome you know, I struggle with this little thing called P-R-I-D-E. <laughs> and what happened immediately was it stuck its ugly head right up. Right after all of these things began to happen, you know, you say to yourself, you know, gee, is all of this really real? Is this um, that God really moved in all of this? And, you know, I was so sure. I, I was ready to die if I'd been told to, to, um, to deny what had happened to me. That's how strongly I understood martyrdom at that time that I could never, ever deny what God had done for me. I asked the Lord to give me a scripture right shortly after this to, you know, to just enhance my, my move here. This same Methodist person had given me a little New Testament Bible. Now, I had a big one sitting on my table at home, which we didn't read. And I opened this uh, Bible, and it fell to Hebrews. And I said, Hebrews? Is there are Hebrews in the Bible? You know, it's like, I, I don't remember... A Hebrews, is this because this is a non-Catholic Bible? You know, I was like, <laughs> and so I read it, and this is what I read. Therefore, since we for our part are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance of sin which clings to us and persevere in running the race which lies ahead. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus who inspires and perfects our faith. I couldn't wait to get home and open my Catholic Bible. There was Hebrews. <laughs> and at that moment, I said to myself, your ignorance of scripture is an abomination. Absolutely horrible. But what happened to me with the baptism of the Holy Spirit was I got this, this hunger for the word of God. I can't tell you, I devoured. I couldn't read enough. I couldn't learn enough. I, I mean, it was like everything was jumping off the page at me. It was just... So amazing to me that this word was so alive. The word that was just so precious to me was that nothing would ever be able to separate me from the love of God that came to me 
in Christ Jesus. As we begin to um, have this prayer meeting, one of the things that began to happen was, you know, I'd always wanted to, to learn to play the guitar. And I, you know, I, I said to the Lord, well, if I can learn to play the guitar, I'll be able to play at the prayer meeting, you know, just if you could help me learn to do this. And uh, <laughs> this man came into our prayer group for a short period of time. He played the guitar. He taught me how to play. They gave free lessons at the high school. I took free lessons. I took the three courses, and I taught two courses after that. It was just like everything was just falling into place. I love music. I love music. Music is the thing that stirs my soul, you know, just really lifting me higher and higher into God's presence. And so one night at our prayer meeting, this man came, and he began to, to speak a word to three people in the room. The first word was to the prayer group leader and his wife. The second word was to the pastor who was our liaison. The third word was to me, and he did not know who I was. He had never seen me before. So he said to me, my sister, the Lord shows me two trees. One is fast growing, one is slow growing. You know, I'm saying, oh, what is, you know, what's this, two trees? You know, it's like I'm, my mind is already racing ahead of him. And, uh. He said, the two trees are two ministries. At that time, I was just barely beginning to dabble in teaching, always a little hesitant that someone who knew scripture a little better than me could say, that's not true. You know, so I was always very careful. And um, he said, the fast-growing tree is a music ministry. It's like the tree that people put in when they build a house right away, and it gives shade to the whole area. But they put in a deeper-rooted tree that takes a little longer to grow, and he said, that's a teaching ministry. And when the roots for the teaching ministry are firmly set in, the other tree's going to fall over. Well, I mean, it's like I took this big gasp. It was like, God is going to take the music? I mean, it was like I, I was panicking right there. Why, why would he take the music? That's the only thing I ever asked him for. Well, I, I went to talk to him after that, and, and uh, he told me, I said, how will I know this? Oh, he said, you'll know. Well, Several years went by, I mean, and I had pushed that prophecy totally out of my head, probably because I didn't want to hear it. Every now and then, at the beginning, I'd have this one-sided conversation with God. He never said anything. I was the only one lamenting. <laughs> so one day, I was coming home, and we had had this storm in our area. And I'm, as I'm driving past a friend's house, I see this massive oak tree that had toppled over in their front yard. And, I mean, I, I was amazed at how shallow the root system was on this great big tree. And I commented on that. Would you look at that tree? It has no root system. Because on an oak tree, all the roots are on top of the ground, mainly. But nothing clicked in my mind. I drove in, up into my driveway. Facing me at the end of my driveway was this tree with the roots sticking out of the ground. Now, two months before that, I had been on a retreat in which I had let everything go to God everything, given him everything. They had encouraged us to do that. Some things were difficult for me, but I, I finally brought myself to do everything. Well, as I looked at that second tree, it was like, oh, no. It's now. It's, it's now. This, this is it, you know? And I just put my head on the steering wheel, and I said, yes, Lord, you know? Now, every time I'd ever talked about the possibility of putting the guitar down, my husband, my prayer group leader, my pastor, because I was playing in church at that time, they say, don't let the music go. So I went first to my husband, and I told him about I said, you remember that prophecy? Well, he didn't. I had to tell him again. And 
I told him I said, well, about the trees. I said, and I know it's now. He said, well, if that's what God is saying, you know, that's what you have to do. And I did, <gasps> you know, he said that, you know. Like, then I went to my prayer group leader, said the same thing. I went to the pastor, he said the same thing. And I said, nobody's asking me to stay. <laughs> They're all just saying go. You know, it was, just, it was so amazing to me that they were so willing to just say, well, so long, you know, goodbye. <laughs> I waited one year before anything happened. And in that one year, I kept questioning, did I hear God right? And then the Lord just began to open things. I was a good guitar player, and I was a good music minister, but I'd have never been invited anywhere because I wasn't that good. <laughs> the gift of teaching that the Lord has given me, developed in me, I cherish this gift. And yet I know in my heart that if he took the anointing away from it, I would let it go because without his anointing it would be nothing, absolutely nothing. And so it's in gratitude that I give to him as long as he calls me to give. The proclamation of his word, the, the teaching of the truths that are in scripture. In 19... 89, the Lord led us to um, something that had been a dream of mine for a long time, was to open a house of prayer. And I had had this vision for a while. The Lord had showed it to me as I was walking one day. And, um, but every time I'd mention it to people, they'd say, that's a good idea. Whenever you get it together, let us know. <laughs> and I'd, I'd come back and the Lord, I'd say, did, did you hear that, God? It's like I'm on my own here. I, I don't know how to even start. You know, unless you open some doors here, you know, we're just going to keep walking. And um, then the Lord brought together a woman and I who lived 90 miles away from me. We were at a retreat one weekend, and somehow God touched our hearts together in prayer. And we began this deep friendship of writing letters, of phone calls. And I, as I'd be writing these things, I'd say, why am I pouring my heart out to this woman? You know, I mean, it's like I just met her really, under, you know, couldn't understand the drive that was here. And then one day I shared with her the vision of the, of the house of prayer. And her response to me was, I'm supposed to be there with you. I was like, oh my gosh, well, how, how is that going to happen? You know, 90 miles away. But what did happen was, her husband eventually stepped into the vision and sold his store and moved to our town. We bought a house. We restored a house with um, donations that people gave to us. We restored uh, everything by labor, volunteer labor, volunteer donations. The house was dedicated in 1989. We celebrated our 17th anniversary on the 15th of October. And God has been faithful to us just absolutely faithful. No one draws a salary so we can live on a very small budget in this house. Everyone is a volunteer, including the two directors. We just, uh, we give because God has asked us to give. We have a healing mass once a month, an emergency food pantry. We do prison ministry to name some of the things that we do. We live in times that can be alarming, but also times that call us to be more. John Paul, the second in his apostolic letter, Novo Millennio Inuente, which means like the approaching third millennium. It's the document he wrote as a blueprint 
of the third millennium. It's absolutely the most awesome document he ever wrote. I encourage you, if you haven't read this document, it's like $3.75. Apostolic letters are filled with wonderful things for the people of God to read and know. In that apostolic letter, he says in paragraph 54, a new century, a new millennium are opening in the light of Christ, but not everyone can see this light. Ours is the wonderful and demanding task of becoming its reflection. Becoming the reflection of the light of Christ is a task for you and for me. It is a wonderful task, but it is a demanding task. It calls for discipline. It calls for being rooted in truth. It calls for being honest and open before God and man. In his Pentecost Eve 2004 message, he proclaimed, Believers conformed by Christ become witnesses. They become sowers of hope. They become agents of mercy and peace. I looked up in the dictionary agent because I wanted, I, I do this all the time just to really get the root meaning of words. An agent is something or someone who produces an effect. And so we're to produce the effect of priests, the effect of hope, of, of peace, of hope. God calls us to that. We who know Jesus Christ have the message of hope. If there's anything this world needs today, it's hope. Hope in something that is lasting and firmly rooted. And the only thing that has that is Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of the world, our Redeemer, the Lamb of God, the Holy One of Israel. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Is he the Lord of your life? Then you should share him. Is he the Lord of your life? And there's nothing in your life that he cannot come to. Even the bad things of our life, he's the Lord of that. And because of that, they shall have to bend their knee to him. They should have to come before him. Do you have people in your family that aren't saved? He's the Lord of that. And you command and you speak to that situation in your life and you say, my Jesus is the Lord of that. And they shall bend their knee to him. You proclaim it. You proclaim it in truth. You proclaim it in belief. Everything, sickness, despair, depression, it bends its knee to Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 2, we read in scriptures, Comfort, give comfort to my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service is at an end, her guilt is expiated, and Jerusalem could be anyone's name anyone's name, speak to them and tell them that their sins are forgiven. Their guilt is expiated because of the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ. There is mercy and grace that comes from God that is hope for every person. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says, there is not now, never has been, nor never will be one person on the face of the earth for whom Jesus Christ did not suffer and die. And if that doesn't give us hope, I don't know what possibly could. To comfort, the dictionary says, means to console, to cheer, to gladden. And we do this with a message of hope. Again from Novo Millennio, paragraph 15. Ours is a time of continual movement, which often leads to restlessness with the risk of doing for the sake of doing. We must resist this temptation by trying to be before trying to do. And I think that that's what's wrong with many of the programs we have today. People aren't 
They have not been in the presence of God, and, and he is not their Lord as they try to do all of these wonderful ideas and programs. I'm sick to death of people thinking that dances and pizza parties are the way we reach youth. What a, what a disservice we do to them when we have this awesome message that is Jesus Christ. You know, I was the DRE in my parish for five years. And I can tell you, when we began to pull them into scripture, it was the first time I didn't have to use massive discipline. You, we put a Bible in their hand, they were, they were opening it and ready for it. Because the word was coming alive to them as we went through and explained and showed them the message of hope that was in here. Somehow when you said Bible, it was like they, they couldn't believe I have a Bible in my hand. They were ready to open it. We had a youth group that we had as part of our ministry out of Servant House one time. This youth group, we led them to full-time ministry as youth to other youth. They traveled to Steubenville conferences. They did music. They did witnessing. They did skits. Today, most of them are in full-time ministry in the church. And I give glory to God for that. In his book, Come Creator Spirit, by Father Reniero Cantela Mesa, who is the preacher to the papal household, under John Paul II, under Benedict XVI, he writes, the spirit goes to work like fire when it attacks damp wood. First it causes all the dampness, all the impurities to come hissing noisily out. When I read that, I was thinking to myself, well, how much hissing did I have to do before God could really purify me, you know? And then it says, all the while it continues to heat up the wood until eventually the wood is transformed into fire itself, glowing and aflame. God wants to set us on fire, my, brother, my, my brothers and sisters. He wants to set us on fire with the message of his love, with the presence of his Holy Spirit in us. Amen. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. Scripture is full of that. It says, are you not aware that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For you are that temple, and your temple is holy. By the Cantala Mesa, and I shared this last night, he said in, in his book, again, when the, when the Spirit of God moved in the Old Testament, it was always with a rush, a rush on a prophet, a rush on a king, for a message, for a task, and then it would pull back and could not rest and stay in a bodily form until he came to rest in the bodily form of the Son of God made man. Jesus himself did not start his public ministry until the Spirit descended on him at his baptism in the Jordan. If Jesus needed the Spirit to begin the ministry, what do you think we need? If the Holy if the apostles in the upper room could not begin to proclaim the message until the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came upon them, where do you think that places us? And then he said, you and I are called temples of the Holy Spirit, something that was never said of the prophets. You know, I took a big gulp on that one. You know, I have a healthy respect for prophets in the Bible, you know, the, the message of God. But they never were the temple. It was just a rush and a backing out. In these days, in these times that we live in, God is pouring out his spirit in a hope of changing the first face of the earth and renewing it. And we are the instruments of that renewal. And it takes the Holy Spirit in us to do that. Just as a PS, 
We do have the Holy Spirit from baptism and confirmation. Did you know that? I hope you knew that. And all it takes is a stirring of that into flame. The gift God gave us is for a reason. He says again, going on, applied to our life, this means that it is the Holy Spirit that keeps us from falling back, from growing cold again. It happens, if it happens, in fact, that we have fallen or are busy growing lukewarm, it's the Holy Spirit who sets us free from that. I read this in a, in a book one time, uh, little hints about when you're growing lukewarm, your prayer life begins to wane a little bit. You begin to become satisfied with where you are spiritually, like I've attained it. I don't, you know, what else could I possibly have, you know? It's a sign of lukewarmness. And then he goes on to say, the remedy for lukewarmness is not fervor, but the Holy Spirit. Fervor is the opposite of lukewarmness, he tells us, not its remedy. We need a good, healthy Pentecost. With the help of grace, it's possible to rise up of our half-heartedness. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful, we pray. Enkindle in us the fire of your love and send forth your spirit. We shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. It's a prayer of the church. After a while, let me see where I am right here right now. Eight years, I'm eight years into my, um, my time on, on the National Service Committee. When I got elected to the National Service Committee, it was like, I just thought that was like a dream come true. I had always just admired and looked at those people and prayed for them. You know, it was like something that you never thought that you would have. And I was excited about that. After I'd served almost a full three-year term, we had a, a meeting in Chicago uh, with our consul. And this, this night was filled with prophetic words. I mean, it was a lot that was going on, okay? And, well, I feel led to share this. I was not going to share this. But as we're standing there, I had this vision. And I saw all these leaders in the renewal. They were lined up here. They were lined up there. And it was like this. And there was this mass of people just facing us. And, and I, I heard the Lord say, pick up the banner. So I looked to the left. And I looked to the right. Like, who's he talking to? Pick up the banner, you know. And, and like nobody was moving, and, and I, I turned back, and the next thing I knew was like this, this flag was in my hand. And the first thing I thought was, well, the flag bearer is always the one that gets killed when they go into battle. You know, it's like, <laughs> and, and uh, so, I, I, but I took it, you know, and I held it up. He said, start moving towards those people, and when you move to them, they're going to come running to you because they want what all of you have. And so I started walking in this vision, and the, and the people on that side began moving closer and closer. Now, also that night, Linda Schubert was with us. And she had this little short prophetic word that says, the Lord says, take your place. And, and you know, I, I went home with that. It was like a little word that just pierced my heart. Now, at the end of our council meeting, we had a National Service Committee meeting, and names were being put into the process to be the new chairman. The chairman had finished the term, no longer eligible for going forward. Well, my name came forward. You know, it was like I was sitting at the table saying, oh, there's no way that's ever going to happen. You know, it's like um, there's never been a woman who's been the chairman, you know. I'm from the Deep South. They probably say, oh, no, you never mind. And uh, <laughs> so... Um, <clears throat> I went home, I never said a word to my husband about that. 
I, I said, I'll wait till the thing t is over and then I'll tell him, well, you know, I got nominated, but you know, so-and-so got elected, but it's an honor to be nominated. And, um, but take your place, begin to really just work on my heart, work on my heart. And so I said to the Lord, Lord, what is my place? What, do you, what are you asking of me? I don't want to grasp for something that's higher than you want me to be, like I'm greedy, and I don't want to reach for something lower than you want me to be, like I'm too lazy to work. I, I just want to be where you want me to be. You have to show me. And when we had our meeting with the election of the, um, of the National Service Committee, after five ballots, I was the one elected. And I sat at the table just absolutely blown away. And the first scripture that came to my mind was, the Lord chooses the foolish to confound the wise. <laughs> it's like, my God. After this year, I have one more year left. I've served, it'll be two terms as the chairman of the service committee. I was the first woman to hold this position. I don't take this as a matter of pride. I just think it's a matter of God opening the door. For, for future things that, that will come. And so I say the same thing to you this morning. Take your place. What is your place? Start asking God. What is your place and where does he want you to be? You know, we used to hear a long time ago, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the nation. It's time for that to happen again. It's time for those of us who have values of life and those of us who nurture and know how to love that we begin to speak out and we no longer allow the things that are happening to happen. Yes. Things are being taken from us. You know, in scripture and in the catechism of the Catholic Church, we are called sons of God. My sisters, male and female, we are sons of God. And a long time ago, a man explained this to me who was a Bible teacher, a Catholic man. He said, you know, I don't know why women push so hard for feminist activity because they are cheating themselves of their role. You know, when we talk about him, we don't mean man, we mean mankind. When we say ma the word man, it means mankind. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a part of the human race. We're, we're mankind right? It's an all-inclusive term. It's been made to, to be something ugly among us today. In the, in the role of sonship is the role of inheritance. Inheritance always goes to the sons first in Scripture. In Galatians, it says, there does not exist among us any longer, male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, we are all one in Christ Jesus. We're sons of God, and if you are a son of God, you inherit all that was promised. So let's not cheat ourselves. Don't let anybody rob you of who you are or what your inheritance is. I think we're called to be model, role models for younger women in dress, in speech, in action of holiness and purity. Holiness is not a bad four-letter word. Think about that. People say that to us sometimes as almost if it's a condemnation. Oh, you think you're so holy. You ever have that? Well, you know, at first it just, I, I, I'd say, no, I'm not. I mean, it's like I just would get defensive. But now I've started saying, oh, gee, it's finally showing. You know, it's like... <laughs> It's been, it's been this long a time, you know, it's, it should be showing, right? When, when somebody says this to us, we should say, thank you. Thank you so much. 
It's the goal of my life to strive for holiness. I want to close with this scripture, again from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. It's not that I have reached it yet, or that I've already finished my course, but I am racing to grasp the prize, if possible, since I have been grasped by Christ Jesus. I do not think of myself as having reached the finish line. I give no thought to what lies behind, but I push on to what is ahead. My entire attention is on the finish line. As I run toward the prize to which God calls me, it's life on high in Christ Jesus. I'm going to lead you in a little short prayer. If you don't like the way I'm wording it, say it another way. Lord Jesus Christ, I need a Savior. And I want that Savior to be you. I ask you to walk with me. I ask you to assist me. Lead and guide me in ways that are true and holy. Send your Holy Spirit to open my eyes to the truth, to give me the zeal to be your witness. And Lord, I just pray right now that by the power of your presence, you would begin to touch us in this room and let us feel the power of your love touching us, the power of your love reaching out to us as we have stood publicly here proclaiming that you, Jesus Christ, are the Lord of our lives. And if we could just all say together, Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. Let's do it together. Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. Amen. We hope you have been touched by Aggie Nick's inspiring testimony. What a gifted speaker. And for more information or a copy of today's broadcast, please write us at Magnificat Proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, 92859. Once again, Magnificat Proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, zip code 92859. And for some of you, it might be easier to call. So feel free to call us at 800 500 4556. If you would like to have more information about the Magnificat ministry, including a location of a Magnificat chapter in your area, you can call 504 828 Mary. That's 504 828 Mary. Or visit the Magnificat website at www. Magnificat-Ministry.org. On behalf of Magnificat Proclaims, this is Donna Ross inviting you to join us next time as we present more personal testimonies from our inspirational Catholic speakers. Remember, Magnificat Proclaims the Greatness of the Lord. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you in His peace. <laughs>